No, you hadn't heard me wrong. You heard me right. Uh, sometimes that happens. Uh, but anyway, my apologies. To Timothy, I was thinking to myself, you know, while I'm reading, I'm thinking about my message, and I'm, and I'm thinking, what happened to the sermon I was preaching? <laughs> anyway, to Timothy, I apologize. Uh, verse 1. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and am persuaded that in thee also. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with unholy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word. The second epistle to Timothy is the very last epistle that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Paul's circumstances had evidently changed between the writing of 1 Timothy and the writing of 2 Timothy. In the first letter, Paul anticipated coming to see uh, Timothy. However, in the second letter, he implores Timothy to come and see him because he is in prison. And the circumstances of his imprisonment and impending death really frame the nature of this letter and the focus of it. Now, Paul didn't expect to be released from prison anytime soon. Indeed, he thought that he was likely to die there. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 6, he says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure, that is his departure for glory, is at hand. And so he expected his life to be poured out as a 
drink offering. That's the, what the word offer there means, that it's going to be poured out as an irretrievable uh, offering before the Lord. And uh, so 2 Timothy really, uh, really represents his parting words. These are Paul's parting words. The last thing that he ever had to say to his young pastoral apprentice, uh, Timothy, and by extension to us. Now, obviously, my ministry is drawing toward a close here at Milton. Uh, thankfully, I am not, like Paul, going to be put to death as far as I know. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, I'm coming to the end of my time. Here And I wondered and thought, what should I say to the folks at Milton whom I've uh, been ministering to and uh, who have been under my pastoral care all these many years? And I thought that maybe if we walked through this book as we head toward the end of my time here and we read together Paul's parting words, that we might be helped of God and I might be helped of God to say something of worth to you, something of value to you by way of encouragement and exhortation. Now, as with many of the books of the Bible, you can get a feel for the theme of the book if you discover certain recurring words or phrases. And one of the key words in this book is the word ashamed. If you look in uh, chapter 1 there where you're reading and verse 8, Paul says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. In verse 12 he says, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. In verse 16 he said, The Lord give mercy unto the house of uh, Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. And in verse 15, we know that familiar verse, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Paul doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed, but he exhorts him to be unashamed. The great writer Samuel Johnson said that shame arises from the fear of man, conscience from the fear of God. And how right he was. Evidently, Timothy, as we know, was a timid character. He was rather retiring. He was somewhat shy. He was a man prone to fear. And no doubt there were times when he retired from the battle, withdrew from the battlefront, when he really should have engaged and spoke up for the Lord Jesus. And so Paul wants Timothy to overcome this trait in his personality, to exercise boldness, and he calls upon him to be unashamed. Notice in verse 8 of our reading, he's to be unashamed, first of all, of Jesus. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. I wonder, are you ashamed of Jesus? Paul tells us not to be ashamed of the Lord. And there are reasons for that. If we were to back up and read those earlier verses, preferably in 2 Timothy this time, if we were to go back up and read those earlier verses, you'd see something of Paul and Timothy's journey together. Uh, Timothy and Paul had a very special uh, relationship. In uh, verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve for my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance of thee in my prayers day and night. He refers to him as my beloved son in verse 2. Now, Paul and Timothy were not physically related. 
uh, you know, they, he wasn't actually his son, his child, and yet he kind of adopted him in a sense. He, he considered him as his own son. Uh, indeed, it says something about their relationship that when Paul comes to what is the very last letter of his life, uh, he doesn't write to the churches as a whole or to one church in particular. <coughs> he doesn't write to certain Christians that he knew in the churches, such as Philemon. But he singles out Timothy, and he writes to Timothy directly and speaks to him. You see, he loved this young man, and he loved his testimony. And he prayed, as, we, as we've seen day and night, uh, for Timothy. He gave thanks for him. His heart's longing was to see this young disciple. Uh, and again, you know, there's an urgency in this letter, as Paul is anticipating that he's soon to be put to death. He wants Timothy to come as quickly as he possibly can. He remembers uh, his rearing and his conversion. If you look there in verses 5 and 6, he speaks about his unfeigned faith that was first in his grandmother, then in his mother, and he says, persuaded of thee also. Evidently, you know, Timothy's father was not a spiritual presence in his life. His father was a Greek. His uh, mother was a Jewess. Uh, but, you know, evidently his father didn't have much input. You know, whether he was an absentee father or what, we do not know. But we know that he certainly wasn't one who uh, shaped Timothy in terms of his walk with the Lord. But uh, when Paul comes to Lystra, where these people lived, uh, he encounters Timothy, and he's, imp he's impressed by Timothy, by his testimony, uh, by his clear stand there in that church. And so he conscripts him to join with him in missionary service. And then he, uh, he causes him to remember not only his own conversion, but his calling uh, of God. Notice verse 6, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of hands. You know, Timothy was a man that God had specifically blessed, a man that God had equipped for service. He was a man who had gifts and a calling, and uh, that calling was acknowledged by Paul and by others with the laying on of hands. And finally, he reminds this young man not only of his spiritually privileged upbringing, of his conversion and of his gifts, but also of his greatest resource, the Lord. Look in verse 7. He says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. He says, Timothy, you know, this fear that you experience, this timidity, uh, this shyness, this reserve is natural. But you need to fall back on the supernatural. You need to be bold. And you need to realize that God has given you a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. And you need to stop fretting and worrying about others and what they think of you and what they may say to you or what they may do to you. So the Lord had been good to Timothy. That's Paul's point. The Lord had been gracious uh, to Timothy. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of him now. He says, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. You know, he has shown us also nothing but mercy and grace. You know, when you look over your life, you can see the Lord's mercies, can't you? You can see moments in time when God was there and he took care of you and he provided for you and he blessed you and he helped you and he strengthened you and he guided you. And you look back at those days and you rejoice in the goodness and the provision and the care of Almighty God. And so such being the case, the least we can do is own him without shame. We must own him without shame. I wonder, are you ashamed of the Lord? 
Are you ashamed to be known as his? Testimony of Jesus. Do you blush at the thought of having to speak up for him, of being identified as one of his? You you think about shame, well, what is it? Shame is a a mixture of things. It's a mixture of personal regret, of self-loathing, and of dishonor. To be ashamed is to show a reluctance to say something or to identify with something for fear of embarrassment, for fear that others are going to frown upon you, uh, to fear that you're going to be humiliated in some way. It's really a, a lack of courage to stand up for something. To feel shame because of what has been said or done. And some of us are that way with the things of the Lord. You see, there are people who profess the Lord Jesus who want to have the applause of this world and care a little for the glory of the Lord. And they're ashamed of the Lord Jesus. Some Christians, sadly, are more concerned about our personal reputations and about our career prospects and what have you than we are about, uh, about the testimony of Christ. And consequently, in this hour in which the church is really under pressure, some are shying away from the truth of Scripture, afraid to preach a whole counsel of God, unwilling to stand upon His Word, and rather they choose to blend in with the culture and with the world. You know, just uh, 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 some time ago, A.W. Uh, Tozer, one of the great writers in, in Christian, recent Christian history, said this, little by little, evangelical Christians these days are being brainwashed. One evidence is that increasing numbers of them are becoming ashamed to be found unequivocally on the side of truth. They say they believe, but their beliefs have been so diluted as to be impossible of clear definition. And Tozer was quite prophetic in that statement. Remember, he's writing from the center part, the middle part of the 20th century, <clears throat> and he's looking down the line, and he sees our day coming, uh, and he sees where the church is going. He sees the drift. He sees the trend, and he realizes that the church is on course, really, to marry up with the world and try to appease the world. You know, just recently, the Archbishop of York stated this, that biblical teaching should submit to 21st century Western cultural beliefs. And that to teach that homosexual practice is wrong in the sight of God is to legitimize homophobia on others. What a shocking statement. What an appalling statement from an archbishop. From a man who professes to represent Christianity. To say that we must now interpret our Bibles, that we must now submit our Bible teachings to 21st century culture and practice. And to suggest that because you preach against a sin, that therefore by extension you must hate the sinner. What a nonsense this is. Any Christian worth his salt, any preacher worth his salt will tell you that we're to hate the sin and love the sinner. Irrespective of what the sin is. Because I preach against adultery doesn't mean that I hate the adulterer. Because I preach honesty doesn't mean I hate the thief. Because I preach against homosexual practice doesn't mean that I hate homosexual people. What a nonsense that is. That's the kind of thing Tozer was talking about. That was the kind of problem he anticipated. Steve Chalk, former spokesperson for the Evangelical Alliance, once pastors prosecuted if they teach homosexual practice as a sin. 
Now get that. Here's a man who professes to be a Christian who once spoke on behalf of the Evangelical Alliance who wants people like me prosecuted for preaching the Word of God. Now for fear of penalty and censure, believers and preachers are being shut down in the very moment when we should be speaking up. You know, we fear that it may hurt our careers, that it may lose us our jobs, that it might lose our reputations, that it might even hurt us with respect to our families, that, that it may even end us up in the law courts. If you're on our church WhatsApp group, you'll have saw that little message this week from Bart concerning his pastor in Poland, the, the man who led him to the Lord, and how this man spoke out against Roman Catholicism and was dragged before the courts and given a 10-month community service sentence. And he's not the only one. Others have been put in prison in Canada and in other places around the world. People have been imprisoned for speaking up for the truth in lands which once were uh, lands that, that were known for freedom. Make no mistake about it. Those who want us to tolerate their sin will show no such tolerance to the gospel. You have to decide whether you're willing to count the cost and be identified with Christ. Now listen, Christians, we should never be ashamed of the Lord Jesus or of the Word of God. Why? Well, because of the gifts and resources that God has given us in the first place. Notice that, therefore, uh, ties in, uh, in with what's going on uh, before here. Uh, when, when Paul is, is, is going down this passage in verse uh, 7, he says that God hath not given us the spirit of fear. There's a, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance, thou stir up the gift of God that is in thee by the putting on of hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sign mind. Uh, we know we're not to be ashamed because the Lord has done such great things for us. In the light of his blessings, we are to stand up with him. You know, he's not ashamed of you. Look in Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. In chapter 2 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he, the Lord, is not ashamed to call them brethren. Isn't that lovely? Here's the Lord Jesus. If anybody had company that you might think he ought to be ashamed of, it would be the Lord Jesus, wouldn't it? When you look at, at us, you know, we're a collection of sinners of different kinds, and every shade, some who have sadly immerse themselves in deep sin and others perhaps who were guilty of self-righteousness or whatever it may be. But we are a spectrum of sin and of sinners. And yet the Lord Jesus, having saved us, doesn't consider any sense of shame in calling us his brethren, even though we sinned against his holiness and against his purity. If he's not ashamed of us, if he's not ashamed to be identified with us, why should we be ashamed to identify with him. You know, the third thing, the third reason you ought not to be ashamed is that if you disown him here, it may well cost you hereafter. Look in Mark chapter 8 for a moment. Mark's gospel and chapter 8. You know, I remember a fellow saying that we ought not to carry your Bible in your hand to church. Now, of course, a lot of people are now carrying their Bibles in their pockets 
by ways of phones. But, you know, some, one guy many years ago, I heard him saying, you know, you ought not to carry your Bible to church because, you know, people think you're a big hypocrite if you carry your Bible to church. And I thought to myself, what is wrong with you? Why wouldn't I carry my Bible to church? You know, the trade unionist has no problem carrying his trade union card. You know, there are people this month who are quite happily uh, expressing their pride in their behavior. All over the world, people are, are happy to tell you what they believe and what they stand for, and suddenly the Christian has to shy away and not carry his Bible to church. You know, I have no problem carrying my Bible to church. I have no problem letting people know where I'm going, and neither should you. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38 says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so there's loss of reward potentially there as the Lord comes. Uh, notice back in our initial reading in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 9, and a series of reasons why we ought not to be ashamed of the Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, Of the Lord he hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Notice the first reason, and the most obvious reason, that we should not be ashamed of the Lord. He saved us. He saved us. We were going to hell. We were lost. We were children of the devil. We were bound for a Christless eternity till the Lord Jesus searched us out and saved us. Well, if that's not cause enough to identify with him, I don't know what is. <coughs> and then he called us unto himself. That is, he separated us with an holy calling. He set us apart. He separated us from the world. He placed us into himself. It's an unmerited calling, not according to our works, but according to his own. It's a purposeful calling, but according to his own purpose. He didn't save us to warm a pew. He saved us for his own purpose. He saved us to bring glory to him. He saved us that in every condition and circumstance of life, we would magnify and exalt his holy name. That's why he saved us. And it's an eternal calling which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This was ever God's purpose from the beginning. Though God knew we would sin, and though he knew that mankind would fall, still he determined to send his son to save us, because his ultimate goal was to get the glory he is, deserves out of us and out of the church. And so we find that God has this purpose in, in respect to our lives, and so we ought not to be ashamed of his purpose. What a glorious calling this is, that God should use you and me, who were just wicked old sinners, to exalt him and glorify him in this world. That's the purpose of our creation and our redemption. And then we find also that the truth of God is revealed in Christ. 
If you're ashamed of Jesus, you're ashamed of the truth of God. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. All those truths are made manifest, are revealed in Christ, who hath abolished death. I love that. He's rendered it powerless and has brought life and immortality through the gospel. See, Christ is far more important than our reputation. He's far more important than our relationships. He's far more important than what people will say or think about us. He's far more important than our careers. He's more important than life itself. And that's where Paul is going with this thought. New Testament Christians understood this. They understood in New Testament times that if you signed up to Christianity, you were putting your life on the line. Notice what Paul says as this passage continues in verse 8. He says, first of all, be not ashamed of Jesus. And then he says, be unashamed of me. He says, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Look, the New Testament never promised followers of Jesus And Jesus never promised followers of Jesus social acceptance. If you want to be socially accepted, my suggestion to you is you go and join the working men's club. You're in the wrong place, okay? Uh, That's where you'll find social acceptance. That's where people will happily receive you. If you thought that being a Christian was going to be a a life, a, a bed of roses, you made a big mistake. Somebody may have sold you a pup along the way. You know, instead, followers of the Savior are told that we must bear his reproach, that we have to bear his cross. In Luke chapter 6 and and verse 22, uh, Luke writes, Blessed are ye, and of course he's he's referring to the Lord, the Lord is speaking, Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Do you realize there are some people who just hate you for no other reason than the fact that you're a Christian? That's it. They just hate you because you're a Christian. It's not your personality they hate. You know, it's not your status that they hate. It's it's not, you know, your jokes that they hate or any other aspect of your life. It's just that you're a Christian. They hate you because you're a Christian. There are some people who shall separate you from their company. I found this out very early on. We, I worked in, a, in an office and was very tight with all of the young men who worked in that office. We went out drinking together and partying together. And, uh, you know, one of the young men was getting married. And uh, when uh, I became a Christian just shortly before his marriage, um, he, he cut me out of the invitations. I, didn't get, I was the only person in the office who wasn't invited to the wedding. Can you imagine it? Simply because I was a Christian. Not that I had done anything on him but that I had changed my position and was a believer. But that's okay. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 13, let us go forth unto him, unto Jesus without the camp, outside of the world, bearing his reproach. Let's bear his reproach. Let's bear it gladly. In 1 Timothy, in in chapter 4 and verse 10, uh, Paul says, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. You think about many of the gospel messages that are heard today. 
Many of them take this line that, you know, if you come to Jesus, you shall have an abundant life, that you will have life abundant. And, uh, you know, they say, well, Jesus came to give you life abundant. If you will become a Christian, you'll know his joy and you'll know his peace and you'll, you'll have a happy life. And there's a measure of truth to that. There's a degree of truth to that. But is it not also the case that coming to Christ might actually bring you hardship? It might put strain on your marriage. It might put a wedge between you and your children. It might cause difficulty for you in your workplace. You see, I think I'm a great believer that we need to be honest with people. When you're sharing the gospel, we need to tell them the whole story. You know, can you imagine if you've got someone who's a potential convert out of the background of, of Islam, uh, you know, you tell him, well, if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be joyous and peaceful and happy. Really? Coming out of Islam, you think that's going to be the response, particularly if he's coming out of fundamentalist type Islam? You think that's going to be the response? That his life is now going to be happy and joyous and peaceful? You know, a number of years ago, in, in my first church, uh, we sent a young man off with a New Tribes Mission. We sent them off uh, on, the, on an outreach to Senegal. And uh, he came back and showed his slides. And, uh, you know, he, he showed a baptism taking place on the beach at Senegal. And it was, it was beautiful scenery. I mean, just the most uh, gorgeous uh, surroundings in which this uh, baptism took place. And he showed a little video of one man being uh, baptized. And then he says, you know, two weeks after this baptism took place, this man was killed by his own family. He was a Muslim man. He was slaughtered in a so-called honor killing by his own parents and brothers. Say to a fellow like that, you come to Christ and you're going to be happy and peaceful and joyous. That's what Jesus has for you. And two weeks later, he's in the grave. Or you go to someone in China and you tell them, listen, come to Jesus and life will take a better turn for you. You'll have an abundant life. You know, that's not what Jesus meant. He didn't mean that your life is suddenly going to be super good in comparison to other people's lives. <coughs> you tell somebody in China that, well, they're going to lose their job. They're going to end up likely in a labor camp. They're going to find life is very stressful indeed. Paul tells us in, uh, in this very book that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Do you realize that you and I living in the United Kingdom today are the abnormal Christians? That in the greater bulk of the world, the greater number of Christians suffer day and daily because of their faith in Christ. Paul says to Timothy, you better be prepared for this, Timothy. All that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You need to toughen up a little bit. You need to harden up a little bit. You need to be a lot less fretful, a lot less fearful, a lot less concerned about what people might say or what people might do. You need to be prepared for persecution. And friends, this is as true of you and me as it is of anyone else, and certainly even of a Timothy. You know, I'm sure that persecution, which we're already seeing on a very low level in this country, you know, we're seeing it in the constant harassment of street preachers. Street preachers are now being arrested with great regularity, taken into a cell overnight and then released the next day without charge. 
This is happening all too frequently. Uh, but you see this happening. This is low-level persecution. You see low-level persecution in education. You see low-level persecution in the field of medicine. You see low-level persecution in politics and so on. I was heartened last night. Did you see the news last night? Uh, I was heartened that our prime minister, and you know, I'm never one that to, to wave a flag for the prime minister, but I thank the Lord for what he said last night. He was being interviewed on ITN by Robert Preston. And Robert Preston uh, asked him if he was now a Roman Catholic, given that he just got married in Westminster uh, Cathedral. And he dodged that question. He said he didn't discuss those things. Uh, and then he moved on and he said to him, Keir Starmer says that he doesn't believe in God. He says, do you believe in God, Prime Minister? And Boris looked a little bit Boris-like. You know how he is. Ruffled his hair a little bit and shuffled around a little bit. And he said, the foolish man says there is no God. And I thought, whoa, I wasn't expecting that answer. Thank the Lord that he gave that answer. But nevertheless, even so, there are powers that be and there are people in the corridors of power who are pushing to shut down the message of the gospel. And what I'm saying to you, friends, is that in the years ahead, and particularly so for our children and for our grandchildren, I think there is persecution coming. And we need to be prepared for it. So Paul, in a Roman prison cell, says to Timothy, you mustn't be ashamed of me. You mustn't be ashamed of my lot. You must share in my affliction. You must be party to my trouble. You must be prepared to suffer for the name of Jesus and not be ashamed of him or of me. And notice he says that I am not ashamed. Look what he says, verse 8. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, that power which we've been reading about in verse 7, of love and of a sound mind. And verse 12 he says, For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. You know, to be part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The, you know, stand up for the Lord Jesus. And Paul goes on and says, I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know, I know whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And they, he says, I know whom I have believed. The, the Greek word, the Greek verb there is absolute. He says, I'm completely convinced of him. He says, I know beyond any shadow of a doubt. That's the kind of knowledge that I have. I know whom I have believed. He's unmovable in his resolution. No matter what the Roman Empire does to him or will do to him, he says, I'm not for moving. I know whom I have believed. And notice he says, he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know whom I have believed. In the words of Spurgeon, he does not say, I know the catechism which I have believed, nor I know the institutes of Calvin, nor I know the body and system of theology, but I know whom 
I have believed. His trust is personal. His trust is experiential. He says, I know that the Lord Jesus absolutely came into my life, that he changed my destiny, that he changed my character and my nature. I know him. He knows the Lord. He's committed to the Lord. And nothing that Rome or Nero can do to him will change that. So he says to the Roman church, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he says, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. He says, I'm convinced of him to such a degree that nothing this world throws at me will throw me off course with him. That's what it means to be unashamed. He says, Christ will see me through. And therefore, I'm not ashamed of my bonds, uh, nor am I ashamed of him. He says, I'm banking on him. I, I have believed, I know whom I believe, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed, that which I've deposited for his safekeeping, that which I have banked with him. I am absolutely convinced that he is going to take care of it against that day, the day of judgment. You know, when Sir James Simpson, the discoverer of chloroform, was on his deathbed, a friend asked him, Sir, what are your speculations? Simpson replied, Speculations? I have no speculations, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He says, I, Death doesn't change my views. I wonder, are you unashamed? That's the thing I want to encourage you to be in the years that lie ahead. Be unashamed of Jesus. You know, our church has a testimony. Don't be ashamed of that testimony. Other churches might wish to capitulate to the world, but I encourage you not to capitulate to the world, to hold your ground. Uh, is Jesus someone who brings shame to your life? Is he an embarrassment to you? Do you blush when others... Uh, speak of him? Do you blush when, you, uh, when others find out that you attend church? Are you reluctant to speak of him, to defend his cause? Have you been keeping your head down and laying low before the world? Are you only a Christian on Sundays? Well, shame on you if you're just a Christian on Sundays. Listen, we must never be ashamed of the Lord or his word. Some years ago, there was a Rwandan brother who was forced by his tribe either to renounce Christ or to die. He refused to renounce Christ, and he was killed instantly. That night before his murder, he had written a commitment called The Fellowship of the Unashamed, which was found in his room after his death. And it said this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes, my presence is secure. Uh, is, sorry, my presence makes sense. My future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. 
My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, diluted, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go on until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all I know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors are clear. I love that. My colors are clear. Are your colors clear? Do others around you know that you are a Christian? Are you unashamed? May God bless these thoughts to your hearts.